Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. There have been problems with the music industry ever since Robert Johnson sold his soul at the crossroads, and musicians love to bite the hand that feeds them. This week, we share our favorite songs about the music industry. Yes. I love my label, and my label loves me. We'll also have a chat with Afrobeat band Antibalas. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to have a conversation with Afrobeat band Antibalas. But first, songs about the music industry. So you still want to do the show business, and you think that you got what it takes? I mean, you really got to rap and be all that, and prepare yourself for the breaks. Check it out. That is a tribe called Quest with show business. Greg, this week we are running around Austin, Texas at South by Southwest, uh, filling our ears with music <laughs> we'll be talking about for the whole rest of the year. We thought we'd pick some of our favorite songs in music history that are about the music business. Often these wind up being protest songs because, let's face it, the music business is uh, is pretty corrupt, has been from day one. Musicians biting the hand that feeds them or mistreats them. Greg, why don't you start us off? I wanted to pick the most bilious protest song that I could think of. That is by one Graham Parker, an unjustifiably under-recognized artist out of the U.K., in the 70s, and he was feeling that pain too. He put out three critically acclaimed albums with Mercury Records in the late 70s, but he wasn't getting a lot of love, especially in the United States. None of those records cracked the top 100, and he was watching contemporaries like Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Joe Jackson, getting all sorts of attention in the States, and Parker took it personally. He dumped Mercury, he moved on to another label in 1979, and put out an album called Squeezing Out Sparks, which justified his own self-belief in how good he was. That record went number 18 in the U.S., became the biggest commercial success of his career. Not only did he have the last laugh on Mercury, but he also got in a parting shot by putting out a song called Mercury Poisoning. You can't get more blatant than that, putting the name of your ex-record company in the title of your song. And, you know, I won't make any great claims for the lyrical nuance in this song. It is just straight on, I hate you, I got a dinosaur (laughs) for a representative, it's got a small brain and refuses to learn. Those are just some sample lyrics from this song. And ironically, one of his strongest hooks ever. Indeed. You know, Parker could write great rock soul songs, and this is one of them. Graham Parker, Mercury Poisoning, on Sound Opinions. No more pretending now the albatross is dying in its nest. The company is crippling me the worst, trying to ruin the best. best. A death promotion so late. They could never ever take it to the real ball game. Maybe they think I'm a pet. Well, I got all the diseases. I'm breaking out in sweat. You bet, cuz I've got 
Graham Parker spitting out some bile at the record industry on mercury poisoning on Sound Opinions. Jim, what's your first pick for a great record industry song? Well, Greg, we're going to jump around throughout history. I have a feeling we'll be coming back to the punk era, which Parker was part of, the tail end. But I'm going to jump ahead now to the late 80s, in that period when lawsuits were being filed that would set precedents about what was fair use for artists to sample and what they would have to pay through the nose for or what they would not be able to use at all. I'm thinking of... Public Enemy's fantastic second album, 1988, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And Chuck D. in the track, Caught, Can We Get a Witness, is mad about a couple of things in the business. In the third verse, he's taking some shots at radio. I declared war on black radio, he raps, because they're not playing Public Enemy, right? But what he's most angry about is the court not understanding sampling. Caught, now in court, because I stole a beat. This is a sampling sport, but I'm giving it a new name. What you hear is mine, P.E., you know the time. Chuck D. and the incredible sound collages that they were making with Public Enemy, you know, they believed that the the use of all of these minute fractions of a sample of a tune that they sometimes turned inside out and upside down and played with the speed, that they weren't necessarily recognizable as the song being sampled. They were creating something new. And yet the courts were suddenly saying that artists like the Beastie Boys on Paul's Boutique or Public Enemy weren't able to use sampling in this way. This ticked Chuck D off. And Chuck D's not a guy you want to tick off, right? Later in the in the track he raps, sample this, my pit bull. <laughs> Chuck is angry. I don't think there's a lot of songs about the business of sampling. This is definitely the best of them. Public enemy caught. Can we get a witness on sound opinions? Can we get a witness from Public Enemy on Sound Opinions? Jim DeRogatis is a great example of a track about the music industry. Now, the reason I chose this next song is because I think it's more shaded. There's a, there's a little more gray in it. You can read a lot into it. It doesn't necessarily have to apply 
to the music industry, which is one of the reasons it's so great. But I think given the history of the songwriter, you can certainly see where she's coming from. This is Amy Mann with a song called Nothing Is Good Enough. Now, after two albums with Geffen Records, a major label in the early 90s, she split with the label. In fact, she talks about this period in her life in the late 90s where she wasn't even sure that she wanted to make music or records anymore because her experience with the label was so dispiriting. And then in 1999, her friend Paul Thomas Anderson asked her to contribute some songs to the soundtrack for Magnolia, which ended up getting her an Academy Award and a Grammy Award and basically revived her career. She breaks ties with Geffen, forms her own super ego record. She was one of the pioneers in going independent on the Internet. And the next year, she releases an album called Bachelor Number 2 that includes Nothing Is Good Enough. Now, as I said, it's a wonderful song, great melody. Lyrics aren't particularly direct. A lot of reading into this song, but it's hard not to associate certain members of Geffen Records and the A&R staff when you hear lines like, it doesn't really help that you can never say what you're looking for, but you'll know it when you hear it, know it when you see it walk through the door, so you say, so you've said many times before. Mm. This sort of devastating sense of resignation about always trying to please the man and the man saying, "Mm, not good enough. I can't tell you what I want, but that's not good enough. Amy Mann, nothing is good enough on Sound Opinions. Critics at the worst could never criticize the way that you do. No, there's no one else I find to undermine or dash a hope quite like you. And you do it so casually too. Cause nothing is good enough for people like you. You have to have someone take the fall. Say what you're looking for But you'll know it when you hear it Know it when you see it Walk through the door Nothing is Good Enough by Amy Mann, an artist we both love, Greg, even if the music business didn't. So you want to be a rock and roll star, okay? 1967, the birds already were cynical about the business of turning young musicians into stars. They had just seen the creation of the Monkees when they wrote this song and recorded it for the Younger Than Yesterday album. But I'm not going to play the original. I want to go to Patti Smith's reinterpretation of the song in 1979 for her fourth album, Wave. You know, Patti almost makes it a celebration because in the punk years, 
Nobody thought anymore that you were going to be uh, embraced by a record company and turned into a star. And yet, to some extent, it was happening to Patti Smith. But she came from the punk ethos. She worked in a factory in New Jersey to scrape up the money, borrowing more from friends like Robert Mapplethorpe to put out her first single, right? I mean, you know, punk was DIY. So that little spoken word breakdown in the middle of the song that she adds that isn't there when the birds did it, hey, you, come here, get up. This is the era where everybody creates. I love that. I love that that line. It's the same thing she did when she covered Van Morrison's Gloria and added that introduction. You know, Patti Smith can really make a song her own like nobody else. Still, the cynicism lives on when you pay for all these riches and fame. It's a vicious game. Patti Smith Group with So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star on Sound of Peace. want to be a rock and roll star from Patti Smith on Sound Opinions. And now we want to hear from you. What songs best skewer or celebrate the record business? Call us at 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back with more songs about the music industry and a chat with Afrobeat band Antibolis. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Out in the street Kidding. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're running down some of the great songs that have been written about the music industry. And Jim, I gotta say, in my research on this topic, I know a lot of these songs already, but generally they tend to be against the music industry. You don't hear too many people cheerleading about it. When they want to write a song about the music industry, they're generally pretty ticked off. Well, there was Nick Lowe's I Love My Label, but he was ironic, I think. (laughs) Yes, I think you're right. Jim, you had played a Public Enemy track earlier, and I want to return to the world of hip-hop. I think there's been a lot of great hip-hop tracks about the corrupting power of money on the integrity of hip-hop. You know, you find a lot of songs in this area where it's an artist talking about me and how I'm offended by the way my record company is treating me. But in a lot of these hip-hop tracks, the best of them, they talk about sort of the wider issues, about how the soul of hip-hop has been corrupted by money and greed. You know, we played Tribe Called Quest show business up at the top. Commons, I Used to Lover is a great example. Ultras, The Industry is Whack. The Fun Loving Criminals with The Biz. You know, they, they sort of paint this broader picture. Another great example of that is this group Black Alicious out of California. Basically a duo, Gift of Gab, the MC, and the DJ producer Chief Excel. They made great albums, the first of which was called Naya in 1999, which this song comes from. Gift of Gab turns this track, Deception, into a moral tale that plays out over these three verses. You, you hear the artist deceiving himself about what matters, and, he, and he's paying the price at the end. You know, he loses his credibility, then he loses his career. This fascinating tale. Blackalicious Deception on Sound Opinions. This is a story of a kid, his name is Cisco. Cisco. Who made more money than the count of money, Crisco. Crisco. He lived a lavish style of life, fast money, women, cars, and he liked to frequent bars, pubs, and discos. Made his living as a world famous rap star. Rap when he star. first started, Mike respects what he was after. after. So he got inside his mind, day and night, and he bright constantly his art and crap he tried to master. master. Started winning local battles, and his rap grew. As the best crow, and what life would do to him, all the cards that was hard, pen and pad, stress relief would be his refuge. Paid his dues doing shows, now he's on track. In the lab, pumping demos, making songs fast. Then he quit his nine to five, finally his time arrived when he signed a major label record. That is Black Alicious with the song Deception, about the deception that the music industry plays on these young hip-hop artists on Sound Opinions. Jim, what do you got next? Well, as noted earlier, Greg, we declared this a Rolling Stones free zone, or we would have gone with the under-assistant West Coast promotion man, which I just love because of the portrait of Mm -hmm. a mid-level record company nebbish. But... You didn't only get those songs in the 60s. The alternative rock era, I think, now that we're past it, we can see as the last 
gasp of the old school music industry. The thousand dollar dinners where bands are being wined and dined and flown around and courted by the major label system, which really wouldn't exist much longer. Local H was a Chicago duo, guitar and drums, led by Scott Lucas with the original drummer Joe Daniels that had some success for the 1996 album As Good As Dead. Remember, it it spawned a couple of alt-era radio hits, high-fiving MF and Eddie Vedder, and most of all, Bound for the Floor. But their relationship with Island was contentious, Island Records, especially because when it came to time to make album number two. They made a very good one, Pack Up the Cats, two years later, 1998. But Island was merging with Polygram, merging with Universal, you know, those record company consolidations, and the record was completely lost. I think that Local H saw this coming, and they recorded a song called Laminate Man. Now, if you've never been to a record industry convention like South by Southwest or any record industry gathering, everybody has these laminated tags around their neck, right? Now, every convention has that, right? But the obnoxious thing in the music world is that the higher-up executives take the tag and they put it in their shirt pocket, (laughs) thereby defeating the purpose of wearing the tag so you can't tell who they are so you don't bother them to do their job and maybe listen to your music. Scott Lucas, I think, is a very funny and underrated lyricist. He, He writes, you want to turn me around by the resume around my neck the laminate, right? Hand in hand on the witness stand, making time with what you got. You want to jerk me around with your resume around your neck. You're going to buy us with the ease of a virus and disease. (laughs) I think this is one of the great alternative rock era anti-music biz songs. Laminate Man by Local H on Sound Opinions.
Local H with Laminate Man, another great song about the music business. Greg, what's your last pick? Jim, in some ways I'm saving the best for last. When we first talked about the idea of this show, this was the song that immediately popped into my head, and I'm going to play it now. You spit it out so quick, (laughs) I didn't even have a chance to name it before you got to it. I I beat you to it. I think it's near and dear to both of our hearts, and anybody who grew up or was around this era when the Sex Pistols were first making waves, people perhaps now don't realize how much controversy they caused in England when they first emerged, signing their first record deal in October of 76 with a major label, EMI put out their first single, Anarchy, in the U.K. in November of that year. By December, the Sex Pistols were already ticking off their label. They appeared on a television talk show in London where they exchanged naughty words with the host, uh, Bill Grundy. And from that point on, were basically public enemy number one in the U.K. as far as the media was concerned. Heathrow Airport in January of 77, they were supposedly spitting each other and throwing insults at the airport staff. And at this point, EMI says, we've had enough. We're we're basically cutting you guys off. We're letting you go. The biggest band in England at the time being let go by their major label. Even a member of parliament got into the act, writing the president <laughs> of EMI saying, surely a group of your size and reputation could forego the doubtful privilege of sponsoring trash like the Sex Pistols. So EMI caves in and lets the Sex Pistols go. Then A&M, another major label, signs them to a deal in March of 77. A week later, they let the Sex Pistols go (laughs) because they've had enough of them. Finally, Virgin Records, uh, the third label in like six months that signs the Sex Pistols because they are so incorrigible, puts the group together, allows them to make an album, which becomes, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, one of the greatest punk albums of all time. And on that record, this song appears. It is basically Johnny Rotten's uncensored viewpoint of his relationship with EMI and also a reference to A&M at the end, basically saying, you guys all stink. I hate you. I want you to die and go to hell, as far as I'm concerned. The Sex Pistols with EMI on Sound Opinions. Let's 
Johnny Rotten, what a sneer. EMI by the Sex Pistols on Sound Opinions. Perhaps an obvious choice, Greg, but a great one. I'm going to go with another obvious choice, but a great one. No two ways you can get around it. Have a Cigar by Pink Floyd is one of the best tracks ever about the music business. I think Pink Floyd has become such an icon of classic rock radio that we don't often think about the tunes and how smart they are. I mean, the song sounds amazing. Wish You Were Here is, the, is the I think, the best recorded of Pink Floyd's great albums. It's an astonishing sonic accomplishment. But the lyrical sense of humor in this song, now, you have to realize where they were in 1975. The dark side of the moon had taken them from this obscure English underground cult band to becoming the best-selling rock band in the world for a very long stretch. Broke every record there was to break. They weren't expecting this. They were used to making weird albums that nobody listened to, right? <laughs> and suddenly the music industry, which has never really paid any attention to them from the beginning in the 60s, is looking at them long and hard. They are having meetings in boardrooms. These were slacker kind of guys that did not like meetings in boardrooms, and they're meeting with executives in with cigars. And they're saying things like these executives, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar. Right? And Pink Floyd doesn't know what to make of this. I think one of the things that make the song special is that it's it's one of only two songs throughout the Floyd's catalog that isn't sung by anybody in the group. They invited the great singer-songwriter from the UK, a, a UK underground hero, Roy Harper, to come in and sing the song. A, a legendary musician who, you know, Led Zeppelin wrote a song about him and he was a hero of The Who, is singing this song and, and making the pitch. I've always had a deep respect, and I mean that most sincere, the executive is saying, right? The band is just fantastic. That's really what I think. Oh, by the way, which one's Pink? And Pink Floyd actually had things like this said to them, you know, where they're being kissed up to by the industry. Oh, you, one of you guys must be Pink. I'd like to meet Pink, right? <laughs> and, of course, Waters got a lot of mileage out of this later with The Wall. But I think as a statement on the record industry, Have a Cigar is the best they ever gave us. Here's Pink Floyd on Sound Opinions. Have a Cigar by Pink Floyd. That wraps up our show featuring songs that deal with the music industry. When we come back, a conversation with Antibalas. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and we've been talking about the music industry. And one group that faces some unique challenges within today's music industry is Antibalas. 
Since 1998, this 12-piece group has specialized in socially aware, horn-heavy music inspired by Afrobeat artists like Fela Kuti, and they've recorded six albums while collaborating with artists like the Dap Kings. But uh, for a band that large, and we're talking like uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire large, touring and recording become epic undertakings. at Talia Hall with Antibalas, and uh, two of the members of Antibalas are joining us at this very moment. Martin Perna and Amayu, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Thank you. Do you guys have a big old school bus, or how do you travel? This tour, we're in two vans. We've two vans. toured in buses before, you know, with beds. Uh, it, pretty much however we can get around efficiently. It's a huge band, to say the least, and uh, it was modeled, at least initially, it seemed like, Martine and Amayo. You, you two were at the ground floor of Antibalas in the uh, late 90s in uh, New York City. Um, originally named Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra. Right? That's actually the third name. The first name was <laughs> Conjunto Antibalas, and then it was Antibalas, and then Afrobeat Orchestra was sort of a subtitle to let people know what the music was, but it wasn't really like the formal name. Because they could, if they couldn't figure out. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what was the, the, the first name? Conjunto Antibalas, which oh, okay. means right. Bulletproof Ensemble. Bulletproof Ensemble. And of course, Antibalas means bulletproof. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, Conjunto is also, it can be a mean ensemble, but Conjunto is a, a, a style from northern Mexico, too. So that was, yeah. that could sort of confuse people who were looking for that to be like, oh, you guys aren't playing Conjunto music. They are not so, a Conjunto band. Either yes. way. Now, now, I heard that that name came to you, and the concept came to you while you were traveling in Mexico City. Yeah, I was visiting some family there, and it was a particularly hot time there, and I just kept, everywhere I looked, I saw the word antibalas, bulletproof vest, bulletproof glass, everything seemed to be in the, you know, in the mid-late 90s becoming bulletproofed, and um, I liked the sort of double meaning of the word, which literally means bulletproof, but it literally—it means anti-bullets as well. And uh, living in the States, where it's such, you know, we export violence all over through the world, you know, we, we wanted to be a voice of peace and figuring out other ways that creativity and art could address conflict. Oh, 
The uh, Afrobeat connection as well. Um, you name your, it's a style of music basically. Am I, um, I know that you were very influenced by Fela yeah. Kuti, the uh, great Nigerian musician. Uh, tell us about how that influenced uh, your uh, getting involved with Antibalas. Having been in several different groups throughout my, my growing up, I was in a martial arts club when I was a kid. Uh, detective squad, you know, so that sort of uh, way of being part of a group and participatory uh, sharing ideas was kind of, you know, seated back then when I was uh, a kid. So, of course, then seeing fella who in my neighborhood and seeing an orchestra was like an extension of that. So it was easy for me to feel myself um, gravitating towards that. He only came to the States uh, a few times. There was not a lot of tours in the States, but the experience of, of uh, that huge band uh, must have been overwhelming uh, to see. Yeah, it's, it, it's overwhelming and yet comforting because, you know, it's basically, it's, uh, it's like kind of living, you know, the way we live. I came from a very big family, so I, was already, I already had a comfort zone there to be in a big group. Everyone has, you know, skills and we come together and try to make things happen. It's what you do experience when you're in an orchestra, you know. Now, several members of Antibalas were involved with bringing Fela's music to Broadway, right? That's true. Yeah, uh, the group was approached, I want to say, maybe the end of 2006, 2007, uh, when the production was just sort of an idea and there were workshops. There was a series of workshops for several weeks and then the show um, went to Off-Broadway and it was really successful there and so there was a certain chunk of our guys who participated in that and then um, it went down for a little bit and then uh, you know they were figuring out how to bring it to Broadway proper and so a big chunk of the band was actually ironically not a I but um, a big chunk of the band was part of that both the Broadway unit and then the touring unit that went to you know different parts of the country and around mm -hmm. the world. Is that part of the delay because it's been five years, long wait for fans of your music on record for this new album? Was that part of it or people were just doing other things and life interferes? What was it? Uh, I, to a certain degree, I mean, uh, without really getting too deep into the weeds about the finances, it's a 12-piece band, and the current musical economy is challenging for that, you know, so yeah. this, even though we want this to be a full-time thing, and when it's full-time, it definitely is full-time, but we have a lot of, you know, a very wide musical vocabulary and a lot of artists, whether it's Arcade Fire... Mark Ronson. Don't believe me, just watch. Oh. 
the Italian pop star Giovanotti. Un battito di cuore così forte che copre tutti gli altri rumori. Mi dice vieni fuori. Mi grida vieni fuori. And sometimes it's just like, okay, we really need to go pay some bills right now, so we'll go out with yeah. that. So part of it is fun, but part of it is also just like New York is a very expensive city, and yeah. um, you know we always got to stay working. How is uh, managing to sustain yourself as an artist in New York now? Because there's a lot of romanticization going on right now about the late 90s, early 2000s. There's a book that's just come out about the New York scene. And I know that several members of Antibalas were living in the same Brooklyn apartment building as members of TV on the radio and the Dap Kings at one point. You know, and it sounds like, oh, it's mythical. But, but New York's brutal. It's it hard is, to be a garage is. band in a city uh, where it costs... I, I can take a shot at that because I'm still there. Yeah. I'm a testimony of being able to survive. Yeah. And you, you really got to understand, you know, how to move, you know? You got to have some, like, skills of, like, sliding through the cracks and, you know, through New York and finding the apartments yeah. and, you know, finding, like, people who are connected to landlords who are actually sympathetic to artists because they understand how it, how it occurs, you know? The process right. of gentrification begins with the artists. We first come in, we see an abandoned building, we step in, we make it something beautiful, beautiful art, you know, and then we make it a place for people to gather, people gather and connect. The real estate, you know, folks step in, they love what's going on. And you on. get gentrified <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we kind of move on. So I've been kind of, I would say I've been on the forefront. I've done what you call a corkscrew through New York. And I'm back to where we started. And now I'm back in Williamsburg. Every city needs creators, curators, and spectators. Mm. But when the, when the sort of ratios of that get thrown off, then it becomes a lot more difficult. And I think what's happened in the past 20 years that the band has been around was that it was a lot more friendly towards creators in the sense that, you know, this apartment where I, me and Tunde Adabimpe from TV on the radio and Dave Siddick and Gabe Roth from um, the Dap Kings, we all went through college together. There's not that many situations where you can, whatever jobs are available to you, you know, service level jobs as a creative person where you can actually keep the lights on and pay your rent and have time to, you know, afford a place to create. Yeah. Uh, I'm for, I feel fortunate that we got the band started 20 years ago because I think it would be a much dif more difficult proposition now. Because when we were doing that, Amayo had a, a space around the corner. That's actually how we met. We lived in the same neighborhood and he had a kung fu studio slash fashion boutique slash green printing shop. It was a, a cultural space. And then in the basement, that became the first Daptone Studios. First time I saw you guys, you were playing at Coachella, and you played that song "Indictment" from uh, one of your earlier records, which was during the height of the the Bush administration in the early right. 2000s. And you were just naming names. You were going down the list, and I'm going, "These guys are going to get arrested after this set," you know. Talk about that a little bit, guys. The, the you know the fact that this music, uh, right up to the current day, with uh, 
where the gods are in peace than you record. You are, you are addressing uh, political concerns much in the same way that Fela did, uh, a guy who was harassed by the government uh, and was arrested by the government and, uh, and was a thorn in the side of the government throughout his career. I mean, Martine, how do you, uh, you know, do you feel that's an essential element of what you, you guys are doing every time you make a record? Yeah, I th I protest is always central, but at the same time, I think our, our tactics have changed because we, when, we, when the band started, Bill Clinton was president and we were protesting Bill Clinton. There were a lot of things that were wrong during that era, you know, so it wasn't like we were like, ah, yay, Bill Clinton. And then Bush came along and we we're like, ah, you know, it was, there's, as, as artists, as creative people, as, as working people, as either immigrants or children of immigrants, there's a lot of people of color in the band, most of the problems that America has, we have as a band. So we're not disconnected from those. And regardless of the administration, it, I, it's our job to use the music to address that creatively. There was another song that we recorded actually here in Chicago for our fourth album, Security, called Filibuster XXX. This whole corporate senate can no longer lead It was exciting to perform those songs, but if it really worked, things would have changed. You know, so I think part of this album is really reframing what does protest look like? What is the longer game? Instead of just looking at the present, what are the historical conditions that go you know, back to the creation of this idea of America that have laid the groundwork for right now. What's fascinating to me as a student of history about this record is it's framing American imperialism uh, in the 1800s, you know, and, and it's sort of inexplicitly asking the question, have we gotten any better? Yeah. Extra, extra, truth is golden, shines forever. In the 1800s, there was a cowboy named Coloma from a town called Gold Town, now Ghost Town. Coloma asked Chief Two Eagles, where did we go wrong? Traditionally, protest has been something that is exclusive, like we're right, and you're wrong, and only the people that are right kind of belong, and the yeah. people that are wrong don't belong. So regardless of what the issue is and who's saying that, there's this idea that we all need to belong. And if you don't feel like you belong, then, then you're either going to be apathetic or you're going to be um, antagonistic. You know? And so part of what we're doing in the shows is like, you know, we don't play indictment anymore. It's a great song. Uh, just even to go back, like in the beginning of the summer, there was um, uh, a mention, not, not from Amayo, but one of the other members of the band was singing a song, and he just said a few words about Trump. And I had a friend who came from Central PA, voted for Donald Trump, and he left. And I felt horrible about that. Yeah. I was like, he was having such a good time. And I was like, oh, man, we failed in this show because we're trying to make every, we're trying to make, you know, you're not going to see this, this banner on the radio, but we're trying to create that, and everybody belongs there. You know, part of like, 
No, we're not, we're not telling you that you're wrong. We're just trying yeah. to create something so irresistibly kind and sustainable that there's no choice but to leave whatever other place you were in and come along with us. You know, so that, I think, is part of um, uh, our approach and strategy as far as protest because it's becoming more and more toxic. And I think as a band, we, we do have some kind of a platform and we do have a power to kind of change uh, you know, try to detoxify the the cultural climate right now, and that's that's a big part of what we're trying to well, do. Well, if we can only start dancing together, then maybe yeah. we can start talking yeah. to each yeah. other. <laughs> We've been talking to Duke Amayo and Martin Perna of Antibalas. The rest of the band's on stage. We're going to hear some tunes. We want to thank Talia Hall and our crowd for coming out today, and Goose Island for supporting Sound Opinions. And now we're going to come together over music. That's right. Thanks for being on the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. That was Martin Perna and Amayo of the band Antibalas talking to us from Talia Hall here in Chicago. You can find video of the group performing live at soundopinions.org. Greg, what's on the show next week? We are going to come back with some bands that are going to highlight the rest of your year. Thanks to the folks at Talia Hall, Shelley Stevens, and Andrew Gill for help with Antibalas. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Ayana Contreras. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. My name is Heidi. I'm calling from Chicago, and I'm calling regarding the soundtrack episode. I listen on podcast. I love you. Anyway, my favorite soundtrack is Rye Cooter, Paris, Texas. It gives you the complete sense of desolation, of heartbreak, of yearning, of the desire to escape. Listen to it again if you haven't listened to it in a while. Listen to it if you've never heard it. It's just glorious and beautiful. And keep up the good work. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Josh from Los Angeles, and I was, I was thinking about calling last week after your show about cover songs, uh, and then you did your movie soundtrack this week, and I had the same song in mind, so I figured I better call, and uh, it's a song, I don't know the name of the artist, but it's a woman singing Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit in Arabic, 
in the 2012 David O. Russell film, American Hustle. And it's the perfect building of a scene and a song. That's a scene where Irving, a small-time con man, suddenly finds himself way over his head, sitting across the table from a mafia hitman. And uh, all of a sudden, the Rob Mafia hitman, played by Robert De Niro, starts speaking fluent Arabic and totally blowing his cover. And he just realizes he just went down the rabbit hole. And it's perfect because there's White Rabbit playing in the background in Arabic. Uh, you know, it's a little bit on the nose, but it just works perfectly. And I think the movie as a whole works perfectly with lots of other scenes like that. I, I was skeptical when I first saw the trailer. I thought, this is just boilerplate 1970s exploitation. Turned out it was a fantastic movie, fantastic soundtrack, and a good addition to the list you guys got started. So thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, guys. This is Steve calling from Valencia, California. I'm calling with my pick for the best movie soundtrack ever. It's from the movie A Walk on the Moon, set in 1969, a movie that dealt with the cultural changes going on at that time. It's a beautiful movie with a soundtrack that musically captures the changes that were happening then. It has some of the best, more obscure songs from that time period, like Today and Embryonic Journey by the Airplane. Followed by Richie Havens. Let the river rock you like a cradle. Climb if you want to get a musical taste of how the times were changing in the 60s, you can't do much better than this soundtrack. And you can end it with Jody Collins' beautiful version of Who Knows Where the Time Goes. Hi, greetings from sunny Denver, Colorado. My name is Echo, and I love your show. I am not a guru about music, but I do have an affinity for the 60s sound. And my favorite movie soundtrack is To Sir With Love. I could just listen to that as if it was a top 10. I hate those top 10 stations. <laughs> I could listen to that at least four or five times a day for at least a week. I just love that sound. Thank you so much for all you do. You guys are great. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.